Welcome to the Movements Podcast, the podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we're going to talk to Keith Urbanic about his book, Cuba's Great Awakening. It's his inside story of a multiplying movement throughout Cuba. At the end of the interview, you want to stay on a little bit longer for some bonus content. Well, we were uh, church planters in the Dominican Republic and had the blessing of working with strong national leaders. And in, in a country where from 1965 to when we got there in, in 1991, they had planted 24 churches. And through working with strong national leaders, we were able to plant seven churches uh, within about a four and a half year period. And so we learned some lessons um, that that we had no I, I had no background really. I was I became a Christian as as a young adult, and so um, I sort of had to learn as I went. In fact, the the National Brothers were actually my teachers. Mm. Uh, they taught me what it was to be a missionary, as I had to to learn from them and from the Spirit of God as we went, and from an awesome uh, couple of mentors, especially uh, Dr. Jim Slack from the IMB. And um, became a, a wonderful mentor for me. And so during that time, um, we learned about empowering leadership. We learned about um, letting the 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 our, our, my brothers and sisters, which because it's their work, mm-hmm. let them take the lead in that work. Uh, and and so basically, we were we were put through the the fire of those early years to learn. So when it was time for God to plant us in the middle of of a movement in Cuba. Um, we had some some uh, some credibility, if you will, because we'd actually been planting churches. Uh, but at the same time, um, we had uh, an understanding that this was all about God. As we were so busy, as so many missionaries are, that you end up burning the candle on both ends and in the middle, uh, and you get close to burnout really quickly. And uh, and Dr. Jim Slack came to visit us, and we did a research study across the country. And he asked me a question. He said, Kurt, why did God call you here to, to Dominican Republic? And I said, well, um, to plant churches. He said, well, why are you teaching at the seminary? And I said, well, because I love seminary. I love teaching. I love it's great for the language. I love the, the relationships. He said, why did God call you to Dominican Republic? And I said, well, plant churches. Well, then why are you teaching in all these Bible institutes? Well, and I went through the same thing. Well, why do you travel all over the country doing these evangelistic crusades? Well, well why did God call you to Cuba? I mean, to, sorry, to the Dominican Republic. And I said, well, it's to plant churches. He said, well, now, how many do you have you're working on right now? I said, well, we, we've got six with Dominicans and one with Haitians. He said, well, how many of them are churches? I thought, well, I don't know. And he said, well, what's a church? I said, well, a church is. And I started to go off. He said, no, that's what the convention says a church is. What does the Bible say a church is? And by the time he got through with me, I was a puddle on the ground, and there wasn't much left of me. And I was forced by the grace of God to go back to his word and to, to get into his word and to find out that uh, uh, there is no definition of church in, in the scripture. There are characteristics of church. And so we went to our, our groups that were meeting and we began to, to study the word and we came up with a list of things that were church. And we found out that list didn't match up necessarily with what the convention dealt with as a church. But this is what God said a church was. And I can remember the excitement on my brothers and sisters' faces as they would be able to, to check off another characteristic of church. 
I'd come driving into the neighborhood and my Lottie Moon band made lots of noise and creaking and groaning and they'd come running out saying, we, uh, uh, we, got, we got another characteristic, got another characteristic. And I found out that for the seven Wardy church, I didn't even know it. Hmm. And so even though I was the missionary, quote, missionary, uh, we don't know. We, there's a whole lot that we need to learn as missionaries. And, uh, and so God began to teach me uh, in those things. And to, I was a, a student of Dr. Roy Fish at Southwestern Seminary, who was uh, Southern Baptist foremost uh, student of revivals and teachers of spiritual awakenings. And so it had been my passion and my desire always to be a part of one. And so um, through those filters, I was able to see what God was doing. On our first trip into Cuba, our first conference we held in Cuba, we had Dr. Henry Blackaby. And Dr. Blackaby uh, was talking to the elderly uh, Cuban pastors, uh, and he, he said, do you know what it is to be the object of millions of people's prayers? He said, do you realize that millions of people have prayed for Cuba over all these years? And that what God is doing here is a result of all of their prayers. He said, do you know what it is to be a stewardship of the prayers of God's people? And he said, if God's, he says, God's hand is upon Cuba. God's anointing is upon you as leaders. And I challenge you today, he said, that you dare not lay that anointing or calling aside and do anything else. And they sat and they cried and they bawled as they, as they, they sat back and watched the glory of God as God has moved in Cuba uh, in such an amazing way. Cuba's history is very unique. Cuban work was not like in many places where outside missionaries came in to work. It was actually Cuban nationals that were exiled uh, to, the United, to the United States uh, during the Spanish occupation back in the 1880s that came to know Christ in America and returned to, to Cuba with the gospel. Uh, one such man was Alberto Jota Diaz, who was uh, the founder of the first evangelical church in Cuba in 1886. Uh, and he started it in 1883, um, uh, actually related to Episcopalians. And in 1886 was, was when uh, he came to the conviction of, of baptism by immersion, and, he, and, and they were able to, to baptize the first believers uh, as far as uh, by immersion in, in Cuba in 1886. And it was the Hesimini Baptist Church. And basically from 1886 to uh, 1898, uh, the work remained very firmly in the hands of national believers as those early converts began to go out and, and see God move in, in some pretty amazing ways under intense persecution uh, by the Catholic Church and by the Spanish government. Uh, they began to see God move uh, across the island. In 1898, uh, there were was when the the U.S. went into Cuba uh, to help in, in with their their fight for liberation. Um, and there were some there was a meeting that took place in Washington D.C. where uh, the American Baptists and the Southern Baptists met together and came up with what's called a comedy agreement. And they divided Cuba in half. And so the eastern half of the island. Uh, was was working with American Baptists in the west of the island remained with Southern Baptists and they grew up together. Both conventions were founded in in uh, in eight in 1905. The uh, west with eight churches and the east with 12 churches. By uh, the time it got to uh, to 1960 and the 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 uh, the 
revolution of Fidel Castro in 1959, uh, they had grown from those early 20 churches to 210 churches. Uh, from 1990 to 19, uh, I'm sorry, from 1960 to 1990, during times of very difficult years of persecution, they were able to plant 28 churches in 30 years. And you see God's faithfulness as they sowed in very difficult times. Uh, but what was interesting is to know what God was doing during those years as he began to form a people who had a passion for God's word, who had a, uh, a, a, a need for prayer, a need to get before God an extraordinary prayer. There are testimonies, for example, of, of Bibiano Molina, who was a, a country pastor that would wake in three or four in the morning and pray every day for God's movement and awakening in Cuba. He actually died in 1984 and never saw with his eyes the movement that he prayed for, and yet that movement came. And so with the fall of the Soviet Union in, um, in, uh, in 1989 and the beginning of withdrawal of Soviet troops, 1989, 1990, from 1990 to 1993, Cuban Baptists planted 28 churches in three years. Hmm. So what had taken 30 years was now accomplished in three years. In 1992, I mean, there was, the people began to flood the churches. It was actually not a, a revival, if you will. It was a spiritual awakening. Hmm. The people of Cuba were awakened to their need. All of those years of, of their time under, uh, uh, under, under Fidel Castro, they had sought to remove God from the conscience and the heart of the people. And what they did was they left a void. And when the system fell and the external support structure fell, the people realized that there was an emptiness in their heart. And they literally began to pour into churches to look for answers. Uh, the people, there were so many people coming to the churches that the, the evangelicals went to the, the religious affairs department of the Communist Party. And they said, look, we have got to repair our buildings because they're falling down around us. We've not even painted our buildings since 1959. We can't even re repair. We can't do anything. We need to build new buildings. We don't have enough room for the people. And the government officials said, what is it with you and you Baptist in your, uh, in your buildings? Can't you pray in your houses? And they did. And that's when the house church movement again was actually 1992. And by, by the time the, the two conventions were first reported house churches, there were over 845, and that was in 1995. So from 1992 to 1995, they had been planning those house churches, but they weren't re reported until uh, 1995. And so basically from, um, from uh, 1990, we had 238 churches. At the end of last year, we have uh, 1,250 churches that are government-recognized churches, 1,246 missions, and 6,845 house churches spread across Cuba. Mm -hmm. And we've seen God move in miraculous ways. Uh, Richard Owen Roberts said that revival is an extraordinary movement of the Spirit of God with extraordinary results. And so what we see in Cuba is an extraordinary movement of the Spirit of God. And the results are certainly extraordinary. Uh, as we had talked earlier, I think it's important to, to, to recognize that when we begin to look at a movement uh, oftentimes we look at, at, 
at a, a graph and we see where a graph begins to take off and begins to, to, to show this, this, this growth, which becomes multiplicative growth. Uh, what happens though, is we oftentimes avoid what happened on the left side of the graph, which is the time before the movement took off. And we forget that those times are, are very important times. For example, you would not have Jesus and the resurrection and the power without the Old Testament history, a full understanding of what of what the sacrificial lamb meant. And so we need to understand and look at our history. Some people are working in very difficult and barren places, and they need to understand that, that that's not a necessarily a bad thing. It just is what we're experiencing. And, and the, the great words of Scripture, but God, in the fullness of time, he brings about amazing, amazing works. And that's what he's done in Cuba. And so basically, uh, I started re uh, recording the numbers basically in 1997 when I began to work there. And from 1997 till the end of last year, um, we, have, we have seen just, just among Baptist churches, and there are other uh, wonderful evangelical churches in Cuba, but just among Baptist churches, 945,000 professions of faith, just among Baptist churches. And so when you have a population of 12 million, and it was one half of 1% evangelical in 1990, to where today it's, it could be as much as 10% evangelical, the, the receptivity in Cuba is off the charts. Hmm. People are coming to Christ even now in greater numbers than they were before. The difference is they're coming to Christ without any, any Christian background at all. Uh, seven out of 10 Cubans are involved in some form of Santeria uh, or the, the Spiritism. And it's basically, it's, it's, uh, it's West African traditional religion dressed up as a Catholic. And so you would think they're Catholic, but when you look at what, what is in their worship system and stuff, they're actually West African uh, practitioners and followers of of orishas and followers of, of, of spirits. And so a lot of people are coming in, coming into Christ carrying this baggage of the past. And so it takes a lot for them to, uh, to really come to know what it is to, to, to walk in the spirit and to, and to walk with the Lord. And part of our challenge in Cuba, for example, with our, if you added the churches and missions and house churches uh, together, we have 9,341. And we only have 524 uh, ordained pastors. So that gives you an idea that this is a very strongly a lay, uh, a lay run movement. The difference between it and in some other countries where there are movements is that these are not loosely connected networks that are out there. They're all connected together with local churches. And so their system of, of pastors and and lay missionaries and laymen that are out working in the field, they're all connected. And uh, unity is, is huge. Uh, together, we're better is their, is their theme. Um, they have had a vision since the founding of the work in 1905, and that vision was Cuba for Christ. In 1997, Dr. Leoncio Vigia at the annual meeting stood up and said, he said, guys, things have to change. He said, people have been pouring into our churches for seven years, and we have not made the needed adjustments. And we have always prayed that Cuba would be one to Christ. But today we need to change something. Now it's Cuba for Christ now. Cuba para Cristo ya. 
He said, you know, he said, we don't hold uh, bitterness towards the past and the things that happened, the imprisonments and the, the uh, re-education camps and the things that happened in the 1960s. Uh, where the pastors and the and the seminary students and many of the young people were put in concentration camps, he said we don't we don't have uh, anger towards the past. He said because it's under the blood. He said the future is in God's hands, and so we really don't need to worry about our futures. He says what we have is today. And he opened the call of to the altar call for for people who come who felt called to go out and start house churches. And hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds came forward, weeping and bawling. I can remember uh, a lady walking, and behind her was her blind husband with his hands on her shoulders as he was following the call to plant churches. For, for Cubans, um, prayer is not an optional thing. And as in many countries of the world, they can take away your Bibles, and they can take away your ability to meet in mass meetings or in other things, but they cannot take away your worship. They cannot take away your prayer. They cannot take away uh, the word that has been sown in your heart. Uh, so, so extraordinary prayer would be one. Another one is the authority of Scripture. In Cuba, they are, are amazing at, at, at memorizing God's word. And, of course, during the times of imprisonment, etc., there, there was a, very, a dearth of Bibles, and so they had to memorize God's word. And they would take different passages and pass them between them, and they would memorize them and pass them on. And they memorized massive passages of Scripture. So today in Cuba, when you talk about discipleship, when you get up to preach or teach, and you begin to quote a verse, the entire congregation will quote the verse before you can even get it out of your mouth. And so a passion for the authority of God's Word. I think having a common goal is, is really important. Important. And for them, their goal was Cuba for Christ. And what we did was when I went in, I traveled with them and observed what God was doing in the movement and tried to articulate it in a vision statement. And of course, it, we in, in, in the West, we like vision statements, you know, and, and uh, we like things that we can quantify and put down. And, and so, but what I tried to do was actually not to, to impose upon them a vision but try to, to, uh, to reverse engineer and look at what they were already saying and what God was already doing. And so the vision statement was to co-labor with the Holy Spirit and the partners that God gives, gives us in the evangelization of all the peoples of Cuba, the planting of churches within walking distance of every Cuban, the training of leaders for those churches, and then the sending of God-called Cuban missionaries to co-labor in global evangelization. And so basically, that's where we are today. And we thank the Lord that now Cuban missionaries are going out and working among the unreached peoples of our world. And so God has, has allowed us the blessing of watching a, a plan fold out in front of us that was God's plan. Now, many of you are familiar with who David Garrison is and with his book, Church Planting Movements, and a wonderful resource. And what's interesting, and uh, he, he, will, he will get a, a kick out of this, or maybe he won't, um, he wrote the beginnings of that back in, in, in uh, probably, I think, probably 1997. Um, but we did not introduce his book at all in Cuba until 1984. And the reason why it was introduced was because some uh, volunteer team from the outside uh, brought the book in and asked us 
we found this wonderful book and we want to teach it, but we don't know what it means. Do you have anybody that knows what this means? And so he brought in uh, Jason Carlisle from our board, who's, who's an amazing man of God. And uh, he, he taught uh, parts of these principles. And what the fact was, all those principles were already present in the movement. But our, our, our idea was we did not want to bring something from the outside and say, conform to these, these principles. Mm. Now, those principles were in everything that we taught and everything that we did. We just didn't um, broadcast, this is what we're doing in China. Why don't you do this here? Or this is what's happening in, 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 in South Asia. Do this here. Does that make sense? Yeah. This was their movement. This is what God was doing among them. We wanted them to articulate what God was doing. And they've done that very effectively. In fact, if anybody wants to, uh, to know what a movement is like in a traditional setting, uh, a historic church setting, uh, just see what God is doing in Cuba. And it, because it's so different than what, is, what, what he's doing in, in, in parts of, of North Africa or the Middle East or or, you know, with, with China or with, with South Asia. Um, and yet, when you see what God's doing, the principles come out the same. Uh, focusing on uh, extraordinary prayer, on abundant uh, sowing of God's word, on the authority of God's word, on the intentional planting of churches, on the planting of reproducing churches from the beginning, focusing on what can we do that we can reproduce uh, in this context. The, the focus on lay leadership, uh, the, the, the focus on empowering leadership. So you may have very highly trained leaders, but they don't control. They empower and release folks into, into God's harvest. Uh, the multiplication of, of, of all kinds of churches, which a lot of people miss out on. You have your, your house church camp and your traditional church camp, and everybody's throwing rocks at each other. Folks, guess what? We need all kinds of churches. We need mega churches. We need house churches. We need cell churches. Uh, we need community churches. We need um, any kind of church that God wants to raise up. We want that church. And we want to see God multiply those churches because we found out that every church has the people that God's given to that church for them to reach. And not everyone has reached the same way. The fact is, to be able to reach the masses, you do have to have multiplying movements among house churches and cell churches. That's understood. But in Cuba, for example, um, less than a third of all of our 1,250 churches, not, not including the 9,000, almost 10,000 units we have, have dedicated church buildings. And so those dedicated church buildings have now become training centers. And so your local church that you have, let's say, on the quarter of 5th and Main, it ceases to be, quote, a church, and it becomes a, an association office, if you will. And there we do training. There we do the, the, the vision casting. There we do corporate celebration of all the groups as we bring them together. But church takes place at home. It takes place out in the networks not necessarily only in that building, if that makes sense. And so Cuba has wonderful models. They have five different models of churches that we've identified. Um, and it's, real, it's, it's super exciting uh, to see what now, of course, in Cuba, we have the blessing that the, that the government won't allow us to build new church buildings. 
And so that's a blessing because we have to find other ways of, of housing the church, which God has always found ways to house his church. And so uh, they meet they meet on patios, they meet on the roofs of buildings, they meet in common areas, they meet in apartments, they meet in houses. Entire houses are gutted and the family will live in one bedroom and every other part of the house is the church. They have, um, you know, so anyway, they uh, meet under trees. They meet, you know, anywhere you want to meet, that's where the church Daniel, is. Daniel Gonzalez was a... Um, was an engineering student, and when God called him uh, to the ministry, and he began to go to the seminary in Havana, and uh, and had a passion for the Lord, and his desire was to go to to the Islamic world with the gospel. And um, Dr. Vigia, who was the president of the seminary, said, "Daniel, you know that 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 we can't go. This is you're talking back in 1996." He says, 1995, 96, you know, you know, we can't go outside to, to be missionaries. He said, but, but let's find a place where we can go, where there's, where there's nothing, where you can, can really experience uh, what it means to, to be a missionary. And so they, they looked around uh, the country of Cuba and they, they found the Island of youth off the coast of Cuba called the Island of, of Pines. And so they took, they took him out there and, and um, Antonio Perez, who was a, a, a pastor that was the one responsible now for what Danielle was going to do out there, went out there with him to the island. They took a ferry, which took hours to get out to the island. They went and slept on a park bench uh, in, in the center of Nueva Gerona, the, the capital of, of, of this island. And um, they got up in the morning and, and Antonio says, look, Danielle, I've got to go back. I've got meetings, he said, but I'm going to give you three words of counsel. He said, the first word of counsel is you need to go, go and work. And he said, and the second thing, he says, you need to work. And the third thing, he says, you need to work, and God bless you, and goodbye, and he left. And so every weekend, uh, Danielle would go to the Island of Youth from the seminary in Havana. He would take a train, or he would have to catch a ride, or he would get on a bus, and he would go to the coast. He would catch the ferry across. He would sleep on the park bench. And he would get up and he would walk out to a hill overlooking the city and he'd lay his hand over the city and he'd pray for the salvation of Nueva Gerona and the salvation of the island. And he did this week after week after week. And he was uh, getting really discouraged and, and beat down. It was very, it was obviously a very difficult thing to study uh, in the seminary all week and then to leave on Friday and had to come back on Monday and start all over again. And, and uh, it seemed like a never ending thing. And one weekend he got really sick and there had been a hepatitis and things going around typhoid. And they told him, look, you can't go to the Island because you're sick. He said, no, he said, I've, I've got to go. I, I, this is what God's called me to do. And so he got on the train with his, his fellow because in, in, in there in Cuba, every seminary student is full time. So on the weekends they go and serve in a field of service. Very, very important part of the practicum part of, of training is putting to work the things that you've learned academically. And so anyway, he went off the island of youth and he got to the shore and he fell asleep uh, as he was waiting. And a, a young man came and woke him up and, and said, are you trying to get on, on the ferry? And he said, yes. He said, where's your ticket? He said, I don't have one. He said, well, give me your identity card and your money and went and bought him a ticket and woke him up and got him on the boat and he, and he, he went across to the other side of, of uh, into, into the Island of Youth. He went to the, the park and went to sleep on the bench. And he got up in the morning and he, he got up to, to go to the place where he usually went. He couldn't get up. And he said, Lord, he said, I can't, 
you know, I, I just can't do this. He said, you have, you have got to heal me. I, I, I just, you know, I, I, I have no strength. I can't do anything. He said, and for the first and only time in his life, the Lord healed him. And he got up and he started to go towards that, that mountain. And the Lord spoke to him in his heart and said, no, Danielle, I want you to go this other direction. And so he turned around and went the other direction. He said, go down this street. He'd never been on that street. He said, go to this building. Never been to that building. Go to the third floor. He went to the third floor. He says, knock on this door. He knocked on the door. The door opens, and it's the young man that helped him get on the ferry. And you see what God did. He went inside, sat down, began to share the gospel with him. His mother came in, started to listen. His girlfriend came in uh, to the front door and tried to distract him. And he he told his girlfriend to go away. I'm, I, I've got to listen to this to this story. And um, and this this young man came to know Christ that day, and became Danielle's uh, right hand man as they worked to plant churches on the way to Herona. Uh, Ten years later, uh, Danielle exited. Uh, the work in Nueva Gerona, leaving about 20 traditional churches, uh, probably 110 to 120 house churches, and then other churches around the island of youth, a seminary extension, a music and worship school. Uh, there's some other stories that I can't share in this format, but were amazing testimonies of what, uh, of what God did in reaching folks from other countries that were studying on the island of youth that they intentionally sent back to those countries as church planters. Uh, which was an amazing, amazing testimony. Well, the young man that he had discipled ended up becoming the pastor of, of that work on the way to Herona. And after 10 years, he exited that work on the way to Herona. And today, uh, he is the president of the Western Baptist Convention Missions Board. And he is sending uh, Cuban Baptist missionaries to co-labor across the globe with the gospel. And during his time on the island of youth, um, this young man named Carol uh, went to Nicaragua as a nursing student to work among the Mosquito People Group and planted a church among an indigenous people there in Nicaragua. And so he actually has the practical experience again to be able to to apply it to, uh, to what he's done. So that story could be repeated over and over and over again about how God can take someone's passion uh, for the lost and and turn it into a movement and then that movement not end that movement continues and it can, continues on today every time i'm in cuba uh i'm deeply deeply convicted uh as to the fact that many of our our countries are living in the third soil of the four soils the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches have choked the word, and it's become unfruitful. And when you go to Cuba, you realize that, for example, in, in many of our, our places where we live, uh, church is part of your life. You have work life and school life and, and social life and sporting life, and uh, church is a part of your life. The difference in Cuba and any place that there's a movement is the church is your life. And that's how it has been in, in, in so many of our places. Because anywhere the church is, the church is your life. But over the generations, things enter into our churches um, that get us sidetracked from the, 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 the issue of the centrality of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the fact that Jesus Christ gave his life that every man, woman, boy, and girl 
could have an opportunity to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's God's passion. And so we really ought to be up, up and about what he's up to. And so basically, the, the things were in my head before because I'd studied awakenings. It's been my passion for, uh, for since I became a Christian, basically. Um, but when you actually walk in a movement, um, it ceases to be theoretical and it becomes extremely practical. I think that every movement goes through a life cycle, as you so so well described in in in, in your book, The Rise and Fall of Movements. Uh, so I'm at, at present devouring that book and and trying to find uh, formats and ways to share it with leadership, because life cycle every movement has a life cycle, and all you have to do is ask, where is the Church of Ephesus today? Where is the Church of Laodicea today? Where is the they don't exist. But their great, 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 great grandchildren do exist and continue to move and continue to proliferate. Cubans, their passion is right now uh, to see a, a vibrant church in every community in Cuba. And that's what their passion is. Uh, it was articulated in 1984 that they wanted to see 100,000 house churches and 10,000 additional uh, historic churches, um, and they wanted to see the light of Christ in every community, and that's what their passion has been. And then the second thing is to be full, fully uh, involved in the global sending of missionaries to the to the fulfilling of the Great Commission, and that's why it's so exciting to see Cubans uh, impacting uh, UPGs. That's that's really what they're where they are. And um, uh, and I think that Cubans also really would have great impact in some of our traditional settings because they there's a saying in Cuba is called apesarde, which means in spite of, in spite of all of these different uh, systemic things that that cause limitations to our growth, in spite of that God has moved, and so we don't have to look at at around us at all of our limitations and continue to ask why and explain all the reasons why it can happen and realize that if God wants it to happen, which he does, then God will empower it to happen. God is moving even in the hardest places of this world. And what he's asking is for us to join him in what he's up to. As a young seminary student, Daniel Gonzalez felt God's call to evangelize the Island of Youth a small island off the coast of Cuba. At the time of Danielle's first visit, there was no reported churches on the island, an entirely unreached mission field, just a short boat ride away. There was a weekend when I shouldn't have traveled to Isle of Youth because I was sick. I went to the island anyway. It was a horrible, horrible journey. Danielle was so sick, in fact, that he couldn't purchase his own ticket for the boat ride. He lay on the dock, writhing in pain, until a stranger offered to buy his ticket. After a miserable night's journey, Danielle arrived on the island. Still too sick to walk, Danielle prayed for healing. I said, Lord, heal me. I need to feel good. I've come all the way here. I think it was the only time in my life that the Lord has healed me instantly. I suddenly felt strong. I felt good. I started walking and I ended up in a neighborhood I had never been to before. 
Determined to fulfill his mission of evangelizing door to door, Daniel picked a random apartment building and knocked on a door. To his great surprise, here was the stranger who had helped him purchase his boat ticket. I asked, what are you doing here? He said, well, I come to share some good news with you. I then accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. God showed his faithfulness to Daniel by answering his prayer for healing. But even more amazing is the divine connection that he established with this random stranger. In the end, this young man was Karel, and he later became the senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Nueva Gerona. That's how work began on the island, by evangelizing door to door. Daniel and Karel each found their place in God's story. Today, through this miraculous connection, more than 10 official churches and a network of over 200 house churches have been planted on the island of youth. It is now one of the most highly evangelized areas in all of Cuba. It's a movements.net and episode 235 of the Movements Podcast to follow the links to how you can pick up a copy of Kurt Urbanek's book, Cuba's Great Awakening. And if you're enjoying the Movements Podcast, give us a shout out on social media or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast.